The gospel stories, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which give us the story of Jesus' life, Jesus' teachings, Jesus' miracles, Jesus' healing, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, they do move along at a pretty good clip. Ginger mentioned this already. It was just a few days ago when we were celebrating the birth of Jesus and singing away in a manger and, and sharing uh, the light of Christ and singing, O Come All Ye Faithful, today. Uh, just uh, We've already heard the story of the baptism of Jesus, and he's not an infant. He's 30 years old, and he's coming up out of the water. Suddenly, the heavens open, and a dove alights, and the Spirit says, This is my Son, my Beloved, which we just heard sung so well. In a matter of weeks, we go from Jesus' birth to Jesus' baptism, and then a few more weeks, we're going to be talking about his death and resurrection. It moves at a quick pace. Today, our text is once again from the Gospel according to John, and it's from chapter 1, picking up where we left off last week. John's Gospel, you recall, uh, begins with a most poetic prologue. There's uh, no birth story. There's no uh, genealogy. There's no drama with characters moving here and there. It is mostly proclamation. And it's four words. The word became flesh. Those four words provide this power-packed information. God, the God of the universe, the God who goes before us and comes after us and is always with us in the midst of the before and the after, that God comes among us and becomes a human being. So we're reading today from verses 14 through 18. So listen as we continue on in John's gospel. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart who has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. The word became flesh and lived among us. Let's think a little bit about these words to help us grasp the importance of this proclamation. First, the word became flesh. The Greek word is sarx. Flesh. Flesh bleeds. Flesh bruises. Flesh is about the most graphic way to talk about what human beings are made of. Skin and bones, blood and guts. Have you ever, do you ever, think of God in fleshy terms? I doubt it. Most of us don't. We think of God as spirit. We think of God as over and beyond 
and above. And yet, John wants us to imagine the almost unspeakable, impossible possibility, the drastic condescension of God. The Word became flesh. God leaves God's heavenly splendor to descend to an infinitely lesser life with us, for us, among us. John wants us to realize the truth. When we confront Jesus, we are confronting God, big God in the flesh. Second, this enfleshed God, this incarnate God, lived among us. Sometimes it says dwelt among us. That Greek word more accurately is something like pitched his tent among us. God doesn't just show up. God gets onto the ground with us, into the mess of life with us. Not on the throne. God is getting dirty, sleeping in a tent next to us. Here's the point. The absolute becomes relative. The Almighty, even a baby. So do you like westerns? You know, like the genre? Like in movies, western movies? This dates me, but my brothers and I used to love watching cowboy movies, western movies, good guys, bad guys, horses, running, shooting. You may know this, but a characteristic feature of American Western movies was that the cowboy hero always came from outside of town. Always. This happens in the great classic High Noon, which first came out in the 1950s and still is the, one of the most highest movies rated. It's like 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. The hero comes from out of town to save the day. This happens in the Clint Eastwood movie, Unforgiven. In the 1990s, the town, torn up with troubles, distraught over what's going on, go out and call on Clint Eastward, who's happily tending his hogs, to come to town to save the day from outside of town to help out in the town to bring justice, to make things right, to make things safe. This is like the gospel. It's like the gospel. The hero for all the world comes from far outside, heavenly places, to right up close. The word became flesh. Bruised, cut, open, pitched a tent among us. The divine human the eternal temporal, the immortal mortal, the infinite finite, immense descent, right? Then it says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Glory. Glory? Glory. It's kind of a churchy word. It's a loaded word. It's a Bible word. Think about this. 
Glory, in its both noun and verb forms, is one of the largest, horizon-filling, joyous, awe-filled words anywhere, especially in Scripture. But it's kind of hard to define. How do you define immense joy and praise? How do you define majestic, awesome moments that are also bringing healing and hope to the most destitute? How do you really define the coming of God into the midst of life? Well, glory, remember, is what the angels sang to the shepherds in the fields. Glory to God in the highest. It was their effort to say, this is magnificent. You've never seen anything like it, and it's going to be transforming. Glory is what we say when we hear those words of forgiveness every day. Sunday, your sins are forgiven. God loves you. Nothing can separate you from God's love. So what do we do? We stand and sing glory. Glory to God, as we did just a moment ago. Gloria, Gloria, glory in the highest. Glory is also what we stand and sing when we give our lives to God, when we give our gifts to God and present them at this table. Because the doxology is really the singing of glory because doxa is Greek for glory. It's about mixing the mundane with the majestic. It's a word that somehow links all these things together. Honor and beauty and majesty and God and gratitude and praise and jubilee and joy all mixed up glory. It's about relief and hope and healing that's taking place and it deserves major celebration. It's about exclamation and affirmation. God is present. We know it. God is at work. We can see it and we can rejoice and we try to realign our lives because it's real. Glory. Glory means God is present in a powerful way and doing powerful and important things at the same time. Glory, it's often so full of light and goodness that it changes everything about us and everything around us. Glory. But glory goes even further than that, deeper than that, becomes even more significant, especially as we read the next verse, because it says, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. The God of the universe who comes into, the, into our midst in Jesus, the Word made flesh, when we see His glory, what happens to us? What happens to us? What do we see? What do we do? Some of the earliest commentators on this particular passage and on this verse want us to know when we see glory, the Word made flesh, God in our midst, it intends to be the glory of the cross. Okay? Jesus is a person from God. He is a great teacher. He's an alluring presence. He's a spirit person, clearly. But more than that, when we see Jesus, we see his glory, and we see everything that Jesus brings as God in the flesh. Namely, evil and death no longer have power over our lives. That's what the cross is about. Namely, the curse of darkness 
the despair that can creep in and take over our lives, well, they lose power because God is present in Jesus. When we see his glory, that's what we see because that's what the cross is about. And demons run away and our sins are forgiven and that's what the cross is about. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's what the cross is about. So when we see the glory, we see the glory of the cross, and it's about all these powerful things. We don't just see a nice guy who's an engaging teacher and a spirit-filled person. We see his glory. God is present in a powerful way and doing powerful and important things, bringing about the reign of God, the full hope and the light of God to redeem our lives and redeem the whole world. And it goes on to say, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So grace, you remember, is how we have faith. By grace, faith. It's how we have faith, by grace. We have been touched by the presence and the Spirit of God in such a way that we're lured into a life of faith. Because of grace, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God, as St. Augustine put it. Because of grace, we're drawn to the glory of God and God's purposes in the world. And it is, it says, grace upon grace. We're not just given grace so that we can live by, grace, live by faith. Grace also gives us more, like eternal life. And we are lured into this godly life knowing that we belong to God. And it's forever. We are lured into this faith life and we know that we're forgiven for our sins. We are lured into this faith by grace and we join in community because community is so important for us to live this life. It's all very important. Can you feel the power of it when we see his glory, grace upon grace? Can you feel the importance of this when we see his glory from from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace, and guess where grace and glory flow? Guess where they lead? The theologian Karl Barth shares one of my favorite forever all-time quotes. Grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude like the voice and echo. Grace follows gratitude like thunder, lightning. Pretty awesome. When we see his glory and receive grace upon grace, our lives intend to be changed, altered. How shall we live when we see God's glory? We have seen God's glory. So how do we live? Glory as the Father's only Son, full of grace upon grace. Glory always involves and leads to gratitude, and it leads to gracious living. John Pavlovitz is a pastor and a teacher and a writer and a speaker, and his writings and his insights in recent weeks have given me encouragement and inspiration. 
his recent post relates, I think, to what it means to see God's glory, to receive grace upon grace, and how glory intends to reorient our lives. This is what he says. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus, I'm not concerned with your politics, and I don't care about your doctrine. I'm not interested in the scriptures you can recite or the prayers you utter out loud. Show me a working theology of empathy. Show me that you actually care about people, not just Republican people or American people or Christian people or white people, but the disparate parade of human beings in every way you encounter them, in every condition they arrive and whatever backstory they've lived through. Show me that you care about people. If you tell me you're a Christian, he goes on, be someone who, like Jesus, looks at the crowds and has compassion for them that propels them into proximity with their pain. Because if you aren't deeply burdened to live from a place of expansive, sacrificial, and selfless love toward your neighbor, not moved to alleviate anguish or reduce suffering, not compelled to leave people better than you found them, honestly, I'm not sure what the point of calling yourself a Christian is. That's what all my reading and prayer and ministering and living as a Christian have yielded. Following Jesus should leave me more compassionate, not less. It's really that simple. As far as I can see, he goes on, it's ridiculous to say that I care about Jesus while not caring about the people placed in my path. I'm called to live the greatest commandment, not to make any single nation great. I think most people walking around the planet understand this whether they're Christians or not. They too get the gist of Jesus and they see there's no bullying or malice or violence there. They recognize the disconnect between love and enmity when it shows up in the neighborhoods and on the timelines and in their living rooms and they smell putrid stench of hypocrisy a mile away. I believe in a God of abundance, he says, I can't comprehend a Christianity that sees others as in competition with me for jobs or health care or a home because an infinite maker has infinite resources. And because I am supposedly trying to emulate a Jesus who has the greatest expression of that abundance. God's abundance in Jesus. We've seen his glory. The Word became flesh, lived among us. We've seen His glory in grace upon grace. God's glory is so awesome. God's glory is so real. God's glory is so wonderful that we are strengthened and moved and our lives are about loving and serving like Jesus. That's our calling. And how much does our world, our city, these times, this place need People who care, who help, who love and serve grace upon grace. Friends, we seek to open our hearts. We seek to live with compassion and care. We seek to live with joy and justice, with peace and purpose toward the world that God intends for all people everywhere. Real glory changes us. Real glory 
refocuses us. Real glory moves us to live and serve following Jesus. Glory be to God. Glory be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we believe, we do, help our unbelief. And may your glory abound in, with, and through us. Amen.